Let's do it. We're going to continue our sermon series that we've been doing through the book of Mark, Gospel According to Mark. We've entitled the teaching series, Mightier Than I, because in the Gospel According to Mark, Jesus is introduced at the very outset of Mark as the one who is mightier than I. Uh, John, the, the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, who's like legend in, in the Gospels. This guy is, I mean, Jesus himself says there's no other human being to have ever lived who's as great as John the Baptist. He was a, he was a prophet in the first century. And yet John the Baptist himself, when he sees Jesus appear on the scene, he points and he says to everyone, this is the one who is mightier than I. This is King Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah who has come to establish his good and right rule, to establish his kingdom, to overthrow the kingdom of darkness, the oppressive kingdom that we're all currently living in, and to establish his good and right kingdom, freedom and hope, grace and love. And so that's the king that we're being introduced to through the book of Mark. We're nearing about halfway through our study through the gospel. Um, Chapter 8 will almost take us to the halfway point. And uh, are you guys getting anything out of this so far? Is this good? Mark's my favorite gospel out of the four. Out of the three synoptics, for sure. And I'm getting people, and because it's short. We like short. It is the shortest one. Um, But I believe we're into week... I always lose track. 11, 12, I think it's 12 this week. 12. I think you're right. I think it's 12. And we're going to keep going. It'll take us all the way up through about mid to late August to finish. So here we go. Mark chapter 8. Let's do it. Starting in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered... And they had nothing to eat. He, that is Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place, this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. There were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, 
no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Verse 14. Now, they, that is the disciples, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. This was a bit earlier on. Verse 20, and the seven for the 4,000. This just happened. And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And we'll stop there. So three stories obviously connected. One story really. 4,000 people out in the middle of nowhere. They'd been with Jesus for a few days. Um, They'd run out of food, practically speaking. Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He said, I'm not going to send them away. They'll, They'll starve to death before they even get home. So he turns to his disciples and he says, what do you guys got? 4,000 people. We got seven loaves. That's a bad ratio. And two fish. He says, all right, give it to me. He gave thanks. And he had the crowd sit down and he began to distribute the loaves. It says in verse eight, they ate and were satisfied and had leftovers collected it all, seven basketfuls. Is that what it says? Seven baskets full of leftovers. They get in the boat, they leave. Immediately the Pharisees, we've heard quite a bit about the Pharisees so far, eight chapters in, they come to Jesus and begin arguing with him, demanding a sign, a sign. What, what rights? On whose authority are you doing these things? They're beginning to feel a little threatened by Jesus, it would seem. Give us a sign. Of course, he doesn't give in. He doesn't play along. Gets back in the boat. They have one loaf of bread. Twelve disciples plus Jesus, one loaf. Better odds. Okay, I mean, I actually have a degree in math. Uh, I can do long division, (laughs) adding, subtracting, fractions, you name it. Seven to 4,000 is way, way worse than one to 13. I actually did the math. And Jesus says, beware, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And of course, they're like, what What are you talking about? We don't have any bread. Well, we have like one loaf. Must be a small bun. For all intents and purposes, they've got no loaves. And of course, Jesus perceives the fact that they're confused again. 
And he begins to explain to them, I'm not talking about bread. Have you forgotten? Are you still without understanding? Are your hearts hard? I'm talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Interesting, he lumps those two together. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they don't understand. Let's, let's start with chapter, or rather verse eight. They ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over. I've got two points to make this morning. Point number one is simply Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. What do you think about that? Jesus has what you're looking for. The hunger, the desire, uh, the, the fulfillment that we, we're all looking for in life. This is like a human thing. Jesus has what you're looking for. He satisfies. And this is not, I mean, this is, this is like part of the big story. Um, I've actually listed a few uh, Old Testament references here. Let me show you these. These are just a few of my favorites. Psalm 22, verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. To dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 90, 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that, may we, that we may rejoice and be glad all, all our days. Psalm 107, 9, for, the, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 145, 16, Lord, open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Next slide, please, a few more. I love these. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched or dry, lifeless places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Two more, Jeremiah 31, 14, I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah 31, 25, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. This is what God does. And we could go on and on and on and on. God says, says to us, he says to his people, he says to creation, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you without come to me? I have what you're truly looking for. I will satisfy your soul. That's quite a promise. That's amazing. I would, I would love that. I would love to experience more of that. I think most famously of all, and I didn't put this one up here, but uh, Philippians chapter 4. Verses 11 to 13, this is what the Apostle Paul writes as a follower of Jesus later on. Oh, this is so good. He says, he's writing a letter to one of the earliest churches in Philippi. This is what he says. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him, Christ Jesus, who strengthens me. He's learned the secret of satisfaction, of being content, whether in want or in plenty. Something about coming to Jesus leads to satisfaction, regardless of the circumstances in this life. Is that not just an astounding promise? Jesus satisfies How? So, I understand that on a a morning like like this, in a little gathering like this, it would be rather silly to just assume that we're all following Jesus. We've all given our lives to Jesus. We we got it. We're we're on board. Um, I know that's not true. I want it to be true. There's my cards on the table. But I get it. Some of you are here, you're like, okay, well, like, satisfy how? Like, how does that actually work? Is that just like an emotional buzz? Do I, is there some sort of transaction? Is it, is it magic? Like, what, how does this work? How does, and let's say you are a Christian, and you're thinking, I, I, those are great verses. I love those verses. Gosh, I wish it were true for me. I, I long to feel that kind of satisfaction, that fullness in my being, in my soul. How? What's, what kind of satisfaction are we talking about? Now, for the 4,000 who had gathered, it was, it was like, it was, a, it was hunger. They were hungry, they were famished, and Jesus said, give me what you got. I will feed you. Obviously, it's, it's, it's metaphorical, it's symbolic. I think that's probably pretty obvious from the text, but that doesn't negate the fact that they were actually physically satisfied. They were were provided for. Their needs were met. I reckon most of us here in this room right now are not starving to death. We've got some pastries on the back there. Help yourself. God bless you. And I'm not trying to make light of hunger. Like that, that's a very real thing. Like I guess maybe I am making light of it. I don't mean to make light of it. I think actually it's a very, very big deal that people who are literally striving to death are given food. But, wh- but what about like us here in this room? How does Jesus satisfy our desires? Now, the reason why I wanted to, I think we can go to the next slide. I wanted to highlight verse 8. Mark, the gospel writer here, is doing something that the gospel writers do a lot. Um, These books are way, way more than just sort of like a retelling of historical events. Like they're packed, they're front-loaded with theological significance. And if if you're reading carefully, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the story of God thus far... Mark will, will quite consistently, he'll, he'll throw in these little, little verses that are meant to evoke the big story. And he does it right here. It's brilliant. Verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over. 
Are you guys familiar with the story of Ruth? This is, this is a pretty obvious way of Mark evoking the story of Ruth. If you don't know the story, I'll summarize it quickly. Um, Old Testament, just after the book of Judges, uh, Ruth is the daughter-in-law of a woman named Naomi. Naomi was married to a man named... Um, Anyone got it? You're like, what? What are we talking about? Doesn't matter. Uh, Naomi, Ellie, Ellie something or other. Ellie. Call him Ellie. Naomi was married to a man who was born in Bethlehem. They left their hometown to go on a long journey to a foreign land named Moab. They had two sons. Their two sons met a couple of ladies, Moabite women in the city of, or the area of Moab. Um, the two boys and Naomi's husband ended up dying. So it's Naomi left over with her two daughter-in-laws now, who are both widows, Ruth and um, Orpah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, thank you. I'm just recalling my Old Testament stories here. Naomi says, look, I, I wouldn't hold it, hold it against you if you decided to like leave me and just make your own way in life. Just do what you got to do. So Orpah, she leaves. Ruth refuses to leave her mother-in-law. She said, no, I'm not going to leave you. I refuse. I'm gonna, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God will be my God. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out with you. They end up going back to Bethlehem. Now, this is a bad situation. In, in that time, in that society, in that culture, uh, single women without husbands, it's like, man, that's, that's a bad state to be in. Like you're not going to be able to provide for yourself. You have zero status. It's, it's just a bad place to be. One might hope that if there's a ne- another male family member nearby, that they might be able to like take you on as an additional wife and redeem you. I know it sounds all very archaic, but this is, this is like a, a means of survival for this ancient time. And so they move back to Bethlehem thinking maybe there'll be someone there, like a distant relative, who can redeem our situation. Ruth ends up meeting a guy named Boaz. Can we go to the next slide, please? Ruth 2.14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reaper And he passed her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Guys, this is Mark's sort of, he's evoking the story of Ruth. He's saying, understand what's happening here. Jesus, the Redeemer who was born in Bethlehem, has come not just to feed a few people in a crowd, but to redeem the world. This is is genius. Mark is is giving us hints as to the true nature of who Jesus really is and what he is in the process of doing. And on the story of Ruth, Boaz, he ends up marrying Ruth. He not only gives her food to eat so that she's satisfied and has some left over, but he ends up taking her into his family. He becomes the kinsman redeemer. He gives her a new name. He gives her hope. Mrs. Boaz. Mrs. Boaz. Don't think that was it, but 
new name, an identity, future, hope. How does Jesus satisfy? The way Boaz satisfied Ruth. He's looking for a people to be in relationship with. This is more than just a momentary material fix. This is, this is like an eternal marriage. When we meet King Jesus, when we experience redemption, the kind of redemption that he offers, it doesn't matter how low you are, how hard life has been to you, what sort of rejection you've undergone, how much you've lost or the enemy has taken away from you. Jesus, the Redeemer, wants to give you a new name. He wants to give you a family to belong to. He wants to give you hope and a new future to look forward to. And one other very, very important thing. He wants to give us a purpose. A purpose. You know, Boaz and Ruth ended up having uh, a son together. His name was Obed. Obed ended up having a son. His name was Jesse. Jesse ended up having a son. His name was David. Ruth was the great-grandmother of a king. And it was through the lineage of David that this king that we're reading about now, King Jesus, Jesus, the mightier one, came. Ruth got a chance to be a part of God's great, epic story of redemption, the redemption of the world. This is how Jesus satisfies Oh, it's, it's way, way beyond a good meal and maybe some warm and fuzzy feelings. It's a complete, completely new life is how Jesus satisfies. How could we possibly screw it up? How could we possibly ever get it wrong? The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. And Jesus said, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with each other, why is he talking about bread? Anyone, anyone bake bread in here? Anyone have a problem with leaven? Apparently that's the problem. How does one screw it up? Leaven. <laughs> gotta, gotta watch out for that leaven. It'll get you. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. What's the meaning of leaven? Okay, now Mark's going to do it again. For those of you who love, like, let's get into, like, the history of Israel and some, like, deep, complex theology, this is for you. You're welcome. 
Some of you, I'm like, I've lost you already. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, this is so boring. Just tell us some funny stories. Sorry, not going to do it this morning. Exodus 12:39. Let me read to you out of the book of Exodus. Now, he's doing it again. Leaven, what, is, what does leaven have to do with anything? Le- leaven has to do with everything. Let me read this to you. Um, 12, Exodus 12, 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Exodus 13, verse 3. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, slavery, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with all of your generations You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign. What's the leaven? When God was delivering his people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, a different empire a different kingdom with a different king, and he was delivering them out of Egypt. He did something that was so beyond their ability to do for themselves that when they left, they didn't even have time to bake bread. They just grabbed the dough and they said, let's go. No time to leaven the bread. That takes time. They had no time to prepare. Their deliverance out of oppression in Egypt was not a well-concocted plan. This was not an escape plan. This was not the escape room. You guys ever done that? I did it once. I was in Nashville about three years ago. If you've never done the escape room, you've got to try it once. If you're like me, and if you've not done it before, you're thinking, why would I do that? That sounds super lame. That's exactly what I thought. But there was a group of us that let's do the escape room. All right, let's go do the escape room, whatever. And we go to this place, and as soon as they put you in the room, and lock the door, and the 60-minute timer begins to tick down, you, I, I became Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I'm talking the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes. Like, I went into my mind palace. I'm like, we must escape. We have to get out of here. This is life or death. And this, the 60 minutes, it was like 24 meets Sherlock Holmes. And I'm like, we got to get this. And you know, if you've ever seen Sherlock Holmes, you know what I'm talking about. Because after like a whole season, you're like, you begin to look at everyone and everything different. You're like analyzing the lint on people's shoulders. Like, like it really, that's, that's, that's the escape room. This is not what happened. Okay, by the way, we did escape. I got a sticker to prove it. Thank you. And you feel like, yes, I did that. I'm a genius. I am Sherlock Holmes. Like, and this is not what happened. No amount of time, no amount of preparation, no amount of post-enlightenment human know-how, no amount of talent, 
no amount of grit or willpower. There was nothing God's people could have done to escape this room. So God intervened. God rescued his people. And the sign, the thing that was meant to remind them of this, was no leaven. They didn't have time to prepare provisions for themselves. And so when they left, they had unleavened bread. It's, it's a very practical thing. But what a great reminder. What a great reminder. The no leaven that was meant to be a sign that it was God who had rescued his people. It was what he had done. What God had done, he was about to do again. Only this time for the whole world. For the whole world. The leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod was this. The leaven of the Pharisees and Herod was thinking that the answer, the sustenance, freedom, the satisfaction that they were looking for was found within. The leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod was thinking that, well, sure, we need God's help, but when it comes right down to it, this escape plan, this, uh, this problem we're facing, the satisfaction that we're looking for, this, this is on me. I can do this. I'll figure this out. Give me 60 minutes. I will escape this room. And it's so easy to slip into that sort of thinking. Oh, sure, we'll, we'll include God. Like, I'll pray. I'll, I'll let Jesus somehow be my helper. But... Really, this is my plan. This is my thing that I must execute and do well enough. And I'm happy to, to, to accommodate God in my situation, my, my plan, my agenda, the things that I think need to be done. But deep down inside, I know that I am the one that's going to make this happen, if anything's going to happen at all. Are you guys tracking with me? Let me put it like this. The Pharisees put their faith in their religious prowess, their piety, their ability to have all the right answers and to know exactly how to act. These were the moral experts. These were the religious pros. What about Herod? Herod, the Roman governor, because he was the governor of, of this region. Herod put his faith in his political clout his legislative uh, control, his ability to influence people in power. He was a politician. Either way you look at it, Pharisees, Herod, they were putting their stock, their faith in human kingdom stuff. Perhaps if I am religious enough, then God will, you know, Help me out. This is like anabolic Jesus. Like, I just need a little help from above, a little spiritual injection to execute my plan. 
which has something to do with being really religious and morally upright. Herod, just a politician. If anything's going to get better in this world, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's up to humanity. We got to do this. We got to get the right people in the right places to pass the right laws, and we will rescue humanity ourselves. I reckon there's like, there's enough truth in either one of those perspectives to be really convincing no matter who you are. Because it's it's like life, right? We got to get on with it. We've got to do stuff. Like, I'm not anti politics. I might lean libertarian, but I realize that, like, legislation is not going to rescue the world. And I also realize that my religiosity is not the answer. Amen. Amen, indeed. I wish it was sometimes. Because I love being in control. I like executing my plan and then including God in the process. They both were happy to co-opt Jesus' new kingdom if he was willing to fit in with their plans. That's the leaven. That's the leaven. What caused Jesus to sigh deep within his spirit and warn his disciples to watch out for the Pharisees and Herod, their leaven. Number one is because they had obviously forgotten uh, the sign. Isn't it ironic that they were demanding a sign? They had forgotten that God had already given them a sign. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, it's the 14th day of the first month that the Jews celebrate Passover. And that that begins the week of unleavened bread for a whole. They celebrate Passover, that moment that God rescued his people by shedding the blood of an innocent lamb. And then for a whole week, they eat unleavened bread to remember as a sign that it was God who set them free. And had little of anything at all to do with their ability, determination, know-how. Gosh, that's humbling. But secondly, it was because they were clearly bothered by Jesus' seeming authority. He was intruding on their agenda, their kingdom. See, Jesus... He's come to establish his kingdom. He's he's come to invite us to join his family and live under his good rule and authority. And when we try to like somehow, when we come to Jesus with our bargaining chips and say, okay, look, I'll let you have a portion of my life. I'll even call you Lord because that's just what we do at church. But we're gonna have to like somehow find like a way for your kingdom to fit within my paradigm. I'm happy to let you be Jesus and Lord and King of like my Sunday morning or my religious habits or this thing that I'm trying to fix about my life as long as I can really be in charge with everything else. And it just doesn't work. 
it like it sparks fly. And Jesus is like, no, we're not going to play that. We're not going to play that game. If you want me to be Lord, if you're looking for the satisfaction that I offer, then I can't just be Lord of a little bit. I must be Lord of all because the kingdom I'm establishing, it's a real kingdom. It's apocalyptic to be sure. It's spiritual. It's cosmic. It's eternal. But it's real. And it requires real allegiance, a real dying to self, and a willingness to submit, surrender yourself to say, not my will anymore. King Jesus, let your will be done in my life. That is so hard. It's so easy to want Jesus to simply accommodate our plans, our agenda, our system of ethics, our politics, our portfolio, our lifestyle. We're fine at letting Jesus tag along, but what happens when Jesus tries to usurp my authority? What happens when Jesus challenges the way I think life should work and the way I should be living? What happens? We argue. No, 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 Jesus. Who are you to tell me how I should live? Who are you to command me how to go about living my life and doing my ethics and my lifestyle and my money and my agenda? This is my life. This is my body. This is, this is my stuff. And Jesus, he's like, sorry. If you want what I have, if you want to experience the satisfaction that only I can provide, these kingdoms cannot collude. This is not going to work out. I have to be the one who is mightier than you. And you have to trust me. Because he's not a tyrant. I'm a tyrant. Have you ever tried being God of your own life for a little while? Of course you have. We all have. You're terrible. Because you're a tyrant. You're a tyrant. Oh my gosh, we're so hard on ourselves. We're brutal. You get it wrong, that's, you're done. You're out. You're straight to hell. Time out. God, I'm glad I'm not God. Because we talked last week about how the mightier one is full of grace. And he doesn't come demanding a performance he comes simply demanding that we trust him, that we let go of control. We put our agenda aside and say, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll give up everything. I'll die to myself. And I'll do it your way. The kind of satisfaction that Jesus offers is only found when we come to him not with our bargaining chips but with humility embracing the fact that I'm weak and I need him to give me a new life so where does that leave us where does that leave you Let me close with three questions and then I'll invite the band to come up. Number one, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Honestly, are you satisfied? 
If you're not, I would invite you to come and rest at the feet of our Redeemer. You know, that's what Ruth did. It's such a beautiful story. She came and rested at the feet of Boaz. And he married her. And he gave her a new life. There's so many things that we can try to do to somehow prove ourselves to King Jesus. And Jesus says, there's one thing that's more important than everything else, and that's that you would come and rest at my feet and learn from me. It begins there. It begins there. I think some of the reasons why, I, someone asked me this morning, how you doing, Simon? I'm like, I'm gonna be honest this morning. And I said, I am stressed out of my mind right now. And I don't know, like, I kind of got the feeling, she was like, whoa, okay. Like, I meant like, hey, how's it going? Not like, bear your soul. Like, <laughs> stressed out of my mind. And I think part of the reason, part of the reason, because I live on planet Earth, and that's just, that's, that's a thing, but part of the reason is because I get into this sort of mindset where it's like, this is all on me, and I gotta, like, I gotta spin, like, a dozen plates, one on each finger, and, like, one on my nose, and, like, I've gotta somehow hold it all together, and I got all this stuff going on, and I think, man, this is, I, I've gotta keep these things going. I gotta keep it all up in the air. I've gotta figure it out. And I end up exhausting myself. And the things that are most important begin to suffer. And Jesus would say to you, if you're not, if you're following him and you're not feeling satisfied, stop what you're doing for a minute and come and rest at the feet of our Redeemer. Give those burdens to him. You cannot bear up under the weight of your own tyranny. Rest. Rest. Let King Jesus be the mightier one. Are you attempting to co-opt Jesus? Yes, you are. And so am I. We're always tempted. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, not the Pharisees, the guys who were in the boat with him, following him, who had given up everything to, to, to be with Jesus. He said, beware, watch out. That leaven, it, it'll get you. And we are always trying to co-opt Jesus to include him in our plans. Are you attempting to incorporate God into your plans or are you learning to die to yourself, relinquish constant control of your life, and instead live according to Jesus' ways? This is like a daily uh, decision. Every day, you have to say, I'm gonna die to myself. What I think is right and what, why I think everything should work and how I should be living my life. Today I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to obey Jesus. He said, go and make disciples of every nation on the planet, teaching them to obey what I've taught you and then baptize them. That, that means adopt them into the family. And by the way, next week we're going to have a baptism. It's going to be phenomenal. Palm Sunday baptism. And I want to invite you if, you, if you want to follow Jesus, or you say, I am following Jesus, I think I'm following Jesus, and you've never been baptized, 
obey Jesus. It's a picture of dying to self and being raised with him, receiving a new life. It's a beautiful picture. And it's a communal picture. It's a communal sacrament, meaning you can't baptize yourself. It's a family affair. Which leads me to my third and final question. Can I invite the band up, please? Do you have bread to share? Do you have bread to share? The crowd was satisfied. All 4,000 were fed that day. They were all satisfied and there was some left over. But where did the bread come from? It didn't just like a mag- magically appear. It wasn't some sort of mystical phenomenon. Well, I guess it was, but there were seven loaves. Seven loaves and two fish. Someone had to give up one of their loaves. I wonder who it was. One of the other gospels says it was like a little kid. It was a little packed lunch. One little youngster had thought ahead. But there were individuals who actually were exercising sacrificial love. They said, look, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Y'all didn't bring any food. I brought bread. They could have kept it themselves. I would have been tempted to be like, I don't got any bread. Just kind of like, let me just sort of fade out of the crowd here. Give my bread away. For what? For what? What's going to happen? We're all going to starve now? What's seven loaves going to do with a crowd of 4,000? Do you have bread to share? Part of the, the way Jesus satisfies our soul is by calling us to live out the way of sacrificial love. And as we begin to pour out, as we begin to give beyond what we've got, It's like, man, if I give up this, what about me? How am I going to survive? How am I going to be fed? Jesus says, trust me. Give it to me. Pour it out. And watch how I satisfy the human soul. If you've been following Jesus for a time, guys, I challenge you. Evaluate your life. Test yourself to see if you're truly walking um, in faith, trusting Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're not giving, if you're not serving If you're not following Jesus in the way of sacrificial love, you could be lying to yourself. In fact, I would say you're lying to yourself. You've co-opted Jesus because you're just kind of into religion. Do you have bread to share? Share it. And experience the satisfaction that King Jesus offers. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.